Welcome to Get Messy, a Melbourne Emergency Student Society podcast covering all the crit care content men's school wants you to know, and then some. All the information in this podcast is put together by medical students for medical students and should not be taken as medical advice. My name is Liam. And my name is Fiona. So today's topic is one that is very close to Liam's heart, but it is the bane of my existence, and, and that is the interpretation of ABGs. Arterial blood gases. There have been several times where a registrar consultant has asked me to interpret them on the wards and my normal reaction is to just awkwardly stare at the printout until they take pity on me. So I think Liam's going to help us today and help me today. Well, we'll see how that goes. Uh, Let's see how clearly I can communicate my thoughts. Everyone thinks I'm a little bit weird for a variety of reasons, but particularly because ABGs are one of those things I love to interpret. I think they get a bad rap, and hopefully by the end of today's podcast, you'll feel a little bit more comfortable interpreting them too. Sounds good to me. The goal of today's podcast is not for you to be an expert in ABG straight off the bat. What I'm hoping to do is go through a basic approach to interpreting an ABG, covering off the main things I do when someone hands me that dreaded sheet of paper. Same as with x-rays, ECGs, and every other investigation we do in medicine, the key is to have a systematic approach. I'll briefly touch on some of the more advanced things you can do with an ABG, but they're covered in more detail in the show notes. If you listeners are keen, I might do a second podcast on advanced ABG interpretation later on. Once we've gone through the basics, we'll do a few case studies. How does that sound, Fee? I like basics. Let's do the basics for now. (laughs) Sounds good. All right. So let's get straight down to it then. This next bit is going to involve a fair bit of talking, but if you can stay with us, it will be worth it. (laughs) My first tip for new players is this. The clinical presentation and history is worth far more than the ABG itself. You can't interpret your ABG in a vacuum. Knowing some of the key points of the patient's history, how sick they are, what supports they're on, what they look like, that will help get you prepared for what you're expecting to find on the ABG. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point. It can really help with some of those confusing acute on chronic pictures like infective exacerbations of COPD. Understanding there is some underlying chronic adaptations will help with interpreting them. And the ABG might look really confusing, but looking at the patient might make more sense to you. Yeah, absolutely. So with that being said, let's start with how I approach an ABG. My first step is to check it's the right patient and see what date and time was collected. And then to quickly skim the results to check that we do indeed have an ABG and not a VBG. ABGs are one of those things that still get reported on pieces of paper, despite having an EMR, and this means it's really easy to pick up the wrong ABG. This is also where knowing the patient's history and presentation helps immensely. If the ABG is reporting an incredibly sick patient, but the person in front of you is sitting up and chatting in bed, you should definitely double check those details. Sometimes a sample will be collected from a vein rather than an artery, which can lead to the results being misinterpreted. VBGs will have a lower arterial oxygen saturation, a higher carbon dioxide, and a raised lactate. Usually, the arterial oxygen will be low normal and not in keeping with the level of CO2 and lactate. However, the easiest way is often correlating with the patient in front of you. If they look well and out of keeping with the results, there's a good chance you may have a VBG. If you have a sick patient, it can be much harder to tell whether it's a true sample or not. No, it's good advice. One of the other things to note when checking with the patient in front of you is checking if they're on any supports. 
Are they on high flow nasal prongs with an FiO2 of 100%? You should be expecting their PaO2 to be through the roof. That can also sometimes help you decide whether or not you've got a venous or arterial sample and how bad things are. So if the patient was healthy, on that much oxygen, even their venous blood should be well oxygenated. Yeah, exactly, Fee. The next step is to check your pH. Determine whether there is an acidosis or an alkalosis. Remember that the normal pH range is 7.35 to 7.45 for an arterial sample, and that because pH is a log scale, small changes will reflect big effects in the blood. The reason I start with pH is it gives me an idea of what general process is going on and what I should be expecting to find with my respiratory and metabolic results. Step three is then to check the respiratory function. And what we're looking for here is any signs of respiratory failure. Remember that there are two types of respiratory failure, and the way to remember them is to remember what the functions of the lungs are. The primary function of the lungs is getting oxygen. So type one failure is hypoxemia, which is when your arterial oxygen is less than 80. The second function is to get rid of CO2. So a type two failure is the accumulation of CO2 above 45. At this stage, you can look at calculating the AA gradient. This tells you the difference in oxygenation between the alveoli and the arteries. This can be a very useful thing to calculate, but we're not going to cover that today. And there is some more information in the show notes if you're interested. Now that we've got a feel for the respiratory state of things, it's time to see how our metabolics are traveling. The first step when looking at the patient's metabolic state is looking at the base excess. The base excess is telling you literally how much extra base is floating around in the body. If it's positive, it implies a metabolic alkalosis. If it's negative, it implies that there is negative base floating around. So in other words, a metabolic acidosis. Exactly. We're expecting a normal range to be in the realms of negative three to positive three. If it's outside that range, it's considered abnormal. I know the next step that you can take is to calculate the anion gap if the patient has metabolic acidosis. Again, we're not gonna to touch on this today, we're going to check out other things first, but it is covered in the show notes. And it is a useful thing to get your head around. But as the same thing with the AA gradient, it's important to get your head around the basics before you start chucking on these other yeah, steps. I agree. Finally, we get to the last step, and that's checking all the other things that you get on the ABG. This includes checking the lactate, the electrolytes, and the methemoglobin level. The lactate is of particular interest in crit care. Do you know why that is, Fee? Arosh did tell me this. I've got a good quiz on this. Um, it's because it's used as a marker of organ perfusion. Yeah, exactly. So organ ischemia is the most common and most important cause of a raised lactate. However, it is not the only cause. The other big one to be aware of is beta agonists. In a patient who's having an asthma attack, who's been on nebulized salbutamol for the past 30 minutes, is probably going to have a slightly elevated lactate as a result. Adrenaline also has the potential to cause very high lactates, and that can make it difficult to interpret an ABG in a patient who's had a cardiac arrest and is on an adrenaline infusion. Alrighty, so now that we've gone through that big chunk of text, uh, let's move on to something more interesting and talk through some case studies. Sounds really good. So for those playing along at home, feel free to grab a pen and a piece of paper so we can write the numbers down and pause this podcast um, so you have to think about it and we'll give you the answer. Great. So our first case is a 23-year-old woman with a history of asthma who's presented to the ED with a severe asthma attack. She's working very hard to breathe and is immediately moved to resus. Your first ABG is collected at 10 a.m. with the following results. Your pH is 7.45. The PaO2 is, or the arterial oxygen, is 85 on room air. 
the PaCO2 is 33 and the bicarb is 20. The base excess is 2. So, Fee, do you want to chat me through what you're thinking about these results? Okay, so the pH is 7.45. It's on the higher end, so I would say it's alkalotic. And with the arterial oxygen at 85, on room air, I would consider that quite low, especially in the 23-year-old women and relatively healthy. Yeah, and I think that's a really key thing. So a PaO2 of 85, it's technically still above the 80 that we use as that cutoff normally for a type 1 respiratory failure. But we're talking about a 23-year-old woman who's usually pretty healthy. You'd be expecting her arterial oxygen to be much higher than that in normal circumstances. So it's definitely on the lower end. Close to 100, yeah. Close to the 100, usually, yeah. yeah. Okay, so carbon dioxide, her um, arterial carbon dioxide was 33. That's low. Yep. Yeah. Her bicarb was 20. I would say that's low normal. Yeah. Yeah. So to summarize, we've got a patient that's got a pH of 7.45, so it's on the alkalotic side of things, is a little bit hypoxic with a low CO2. What do you think is going on here, Fee? A type 1 respiratory failure with some small degree of respiratory alkalosis, but no metabolic compensation. Great. And does that kind of match with the picture that you're seeing in the bed in front of you? Yes, we have a 23-year-old woman who's asthmatic. So she's struggling to get air in and she's also breathing really quickly. So she's ventilating and that means she's blowing off all of her CO2. Yeah. So if we take a quick break for some physiology here, if you remember back to your respiratory lectures in first year or second year, you remember that CO2 dissolves in water a lot better than oxygen does. And so what that means is when patients hyperventilate, they will blow their CO2 off much faster than they'll bring oxygen back in. So as a result, in a patient that's hyperventilating, it's not unexpected to see a low CO2, which is resulting in a small alkalotic process occurring because when CO2 dissolves in the blood, it forms an acid. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Great. It's good, Liam. Wonderful. So that's case one. Case two is the same patient, but half an hour later. They seem to be in less distress and you think that's a good thing, but you get a follow up ABG just to see how she's improving. She's currently on 15 liters of oxygen via a Hudson mask. Her ABG results are a pH of 7.30, a PaO2 of 72, a PaCO2 of 50, a bicarb of 21, and a base excess of negative two. So, Fee, run us through these results and what your process is. pH is 7.3, definitely acidotic. So what's the normal range again for pH? 7.35 to 7.45. Wonderful. Yes. <laughs> Learned something. pH is 72. So it's gone down from her last results and it, it is still like very low actually. Yeah. And what's it low in the context of? It's low in the context of the fact that she's also on 15 liters of oxygen as well. Absolutely. So if this patient under healthy circumstances without oxygen, we expected her PO2 to be quite high. Now she's on extra oxygen and she's still uh, dropping her saturation. So that's quite a worrying sign. Yeah, something's really wrong. Her PaCO2 is 50. So it's gone up since the last time. I think the reasons for this, she's hypoventilating. She's not in distress anymore. She's probably exhausted, honestly. And that could be the reason for the acidosis. Great. What do you think of the bicarb and the base excess? Bicarb of 21. So it's gone up by one. 
possibly more CO2 dissolving in her blood that causing them to raise bicarb. Mm-hmm. And a base excess was negative two. So metabolic acidosis. And Correct. I think there are different reasons why it could be like this. So a base excess is negative two. So it's gone from two to negative two. So something's going on, but I'm not quite sure the reasons behind that actually. Great. No, so we can cover that in just a moment. But given the whole kind of picture, what do you think's going on here? I'm seeing a type two respiratory failure with respiratory acidosis. Wonderful. Yeah, so I think you're right. And uh, do you want to explain what you think is going on in terms of what's causing a type 2 respiratory failure? Why she flipped from 1 to 2? So it's 2. She's hypoventilating. She's not blowing off her CO2 and all that is accumulated. Yeah, exactly. So with your asthmatics, you may have heard a phrase about being aware of the silent asthmatic or the silent chest in an asthmatic patient. Always, yes. Yeah, so this is something that comes up a lot. So when patients first come in with an asthma attack, they're usually breathing very, very hard and they're using a lot of energy to try and get air in. Uh, During that time, you're gonna hear lots of wheezing, lots of spluttering, they're gonna look like they're in distress. However, as they start to tire, they stop being able to move air in and out as much. That means that their wheeze starts to drop and they stop moving air in and out, which means that their CO2 starts to accumulate, which leads to a bit more drowsiness. So on a patient that's starting to look a little bit too relaxed, a little bit too calm, when previously they were very, very sick with an asthma attack, you're actually worried that they're decompensating from exhaustion. Does that make sense, Fee? Yeah, so always be aware of the silent chest. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing that you brought up was a little bit of acid-based stuff in terms of our bicarb and our base excess. So the bicarb has risen to 21 from 20. So what's probably going on there is that as the extra CO2 is dissolving into the bloodstream, it's starting to interfere with that acid base. As you know, when you dissolve CO2, it forms an acid, but one of the byproducts is also bicarb. And so the bicarb being 21 in this case is probably reflective of just the extra CO2 that's being dissolved in the blood. Okay. The base excess is a little bit trickier to uh, get your head around. In this case, this is where you'd look at your extra kind of bits at the bottom of the ABG. And the thing I'd be interested in is the lactate in particular. So what I'd be worried about is that one, she's quite hypoxic. I'd be worried about her end organ perfusion and whether she's getting some organ ischemia or hypoxia, which is leading to that raised lactate. However, the other thing that's playing in my head at the moment is she is an asthma patient. So she's going to be on beta agonists, either salbutamol or adrenaline. And that's likely to activate the beta-3 receptors in her liver and result in increased lactate production by the liver. So we'd have to check what the lactate is to be sure, but that's where my thinking is on that base excess there. How about let's go to the final case now? That sounds good. So your final patient is a 65-year-old male with a history of COPD coming in with a community-acquired pneumonia. His results will follow in a minute, but just before we get there, Fee, what are you expecting to see on his ABG? In someone with a history of COPD, so they've had this condition for a while, I'm expecting some sort of chronic condition with a degree of compensation. Exactly, that's really good. So remember, always look at your patient and think about what you're expecting to see before you start looking at your results. So, you get your ABG back, your pH is 7.33, the PaO2 is 85, the PaCO2 is 50, and the bicarb is 33, and the base excess is five. So Fee, what do you think's going on? 7.33 pH. So it's 
on the acidotic side, but it's not hugely, especially in comparison to our previous patient. The PaO2 is 85, still on the low end. The PaCO2 is 50, so that's elevated. And the bicarb is 33, which in the normal, high normal range. No, it's just high. <laughs> yeah, so bicarb is one of those things that it doesn't necessarily have an exact range and it can be quite difficult to interpret. But the more you see, the more you kind of get used to what is a normal number. And I'd say seeing a bicarb above 28 is fairly abnormal. Mm. And if you look at the base excess as well, it's base excess of five. We're thinking more of a metabolic alkalosis. Great. So putting all this together, what do you think is going on? So I'm thinking it's a chronic respiratory acidosis that is compensated with metabolic alkalosis. Great. And does that fit in with your original patient? Yeah, it does. So in COPD patients, they're in a chronic hypercapnic state. And that means they always have a lot of high CO2 in them. And then the body also then would then have a compensation metabolically with the high bicarb. Exactly. So this is where we get to our, the kind of some more physiology. If you remember your COPD lectures, the blue bloaters and the pink puffers. So the blue boat bloaters in particular are the ones that are typically CO2 retainers. And so they're the patients that will typically see this kind of picture. What's probably going on is that he's usually ticking along fairly stably, uh, but he's currently got an infective exacerbation of his COPD. And that means he's probably being thrown off a little bit in terms of his physiology, might be a little bit more acidotic than usual and a little bit more hypoxic. So his ABG is a little bit worse than his baseline, but all in all, it's probably not hugely deviated from his normal. Thanks so much, Liam. I think that's probably all we have time for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and getting messy with us. If you'd like a summary of today's podcast, you can download the show notes from messunimel.org. Thanks again. And until next time, stay messy.